I'm a huge fan of STS for so many reasons. We try to change systems. We try to design systems from the ground up. We try to, systems also change us and systems also sort of co-design um, our set of possibilities and our set of possible worlds. Hello, and welcome back to Eclectic Spacewalk. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay. Today on Conversations, we are joined by Fred Sharman. Fred is an associate professor and program director of graduate architecture in the Department of Graduate Built Environment Studies in the School of Architecture and Planning at Morgan State University. Fred is also the co-founder of Brick Moon and the author of Space Forces and Space Settlements. We had a fantastic talk about design, space architecture, speculative futures, and bringing a critical perspective to the overview effect. Now, before we play the episode, I would ask you to like the video and subscribe to the channel. It really helps us grow and reach more people, as well as continue to have more interesting discussions with eclectic guests. Also, tell us in the comments what your favorite part of the talk was and who we should invite on next. Now, on to the conversation. What can you say your earliest interests were? Like, what were you the most curious about when you were going? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, um, my field right now is architecture and urban design. And I got into that sort of uh, by way of being a kid who was obsessed with the future and oh, okay. what kind of spaces and things we would make in the future. And for me, finding out about the field of design was a way to sort of directly connect that early kind of impulse about like, the future is cool and interesting and exciting to, you know, an actual profession that people practice every day. Mm -hmm. And so um, as somebody who was into thinking about the future, I found a lot of uh, a lot of resonances in in bringing those those uh, areas of interest back to architecture and urban design, back to sort of my home fields, um, because it's what it's what we do. It keeps us mm -hmm. excited about um, about the things that we do and the, and the work that we put in every single day because we're you know in, in one sense in a mundane uh sense people who design buildings are sitting there drafting or making phone calls but what you're, re what you're really doing is building a new world you're making a new mm. world and you're thinking about what that world should include in it and what it should be like um so an early excitement you know it, and and uh interest in space science and the kind of futures that that organizations like NASA or, you know, science fiction culture was was showing us that could be possible, um, really for me connected directly into, into the field that I'm in now. That's really cool. And so I'm assuming we'll get into some of these uh, other maybe um, science fiction, uh, other kind of speculative fiction kind of things uh, as, as we go on in our conversation. But was there maybe uh, certain authors or certain kind of things that were drawing you? Was it maybe more uh, TV film? Was it books? You know, what, what kind of really uh, sparked your interest first? Yeah. I mean, I, I, looking back and this, these are the kinds of things you track down later from like used bookstores <laughs> online and stuff. And sure. uh, sometimes, you know, these things are either like, Oh, it costs $2 or sometimes it's like, Oh, that costs $245. Uh, but uh, some, some of the things I have on my shelf right now that I've, I've had, you know, one form or another since I was a kid, um, uh, are things like the, uh, the Usborne book of the future, okay. uh, which I think came out of the UK originally. 
And uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, these were books that were showing us things like ah, robots, uh, video watches, um, solar panels, high speed maglev trains in, mm. you know, in vacuum tunnels, uh, living in Antarctica or living on the moon, living in space. Um, really heavily, like richly illustrated books that you could just sit on the floor and flip through and get lost in for hours. Wow. And the American version of that was, it wasn't a direct spinoff of the Whole Earth Catalog, but it was a book that was inspired by the Whole Earth Catalog, um, a book called The Kids' Whole Future Catalog that was a, a broad compendium, you know, with references to learn more, you know, on your next trip to the library. Oh, cool. It was a, a broad collection of, of the, the existing state of the art. And, and again, the, the late seventies, early eighties, um, you know, when I went, would have been about, you know, five or six years old, um, the existing state of the art for all those technologies that, you know, that we were told, uh, you know, our generation was told we're going to define our future. And my parents were, uh, my parents were both ex hippies. So they had this kind of, uh, impulse to collect these these books and things that were part of the more eclectic, you know, counterculture inflected um, uh, areas of knowledge. And so I didn't know that that was a little bit unusual at the time. I just flipped through the books that were put in front of me. But once I started seeing like these kinds of things, especially, you know, these illustrations uh, mm. that, that sell the idea that, that just that depict the world and really um, kind of uh, make the case for how compelling these spaces and these objects are going to be um uh that that was that was a real sort of takeoff point for me that's so cool because honestly i was thinking back the first thing that came to my mind was when i was growing up with these uh kind of picture books where you open them up and then there would be like uh, a castle but then there would be uh, like a cut you know in the castle oh, yeah. and so you can like see inside and the design and that was always kind of very cool to me um yeah. So, so I guess then the best formulation to continue on this thread is like kind of talk, walk us through your acad academic journey to now, or what kind of, what were you doing? Maybe you uh, were, did you do some special internships or kind of get in, was it kind of a snowballing into this design or was it, you know, kind of a eureka moment? Like how did you get to, uh, and then we'll go into your professorship. So how, kind of up until now, what, what has been your journey? Yeah. I mean, this is another moment where, um, where I was, I was, lucky and and uh it was it was productive to remember that i could connect like this early stuff with with the real world today um mm, when i was okay. I, I got an interest in teaching i spent a lot of time um working in different aspects of the of the profession of architecture okay. um my dad was a carpenter so ah. uh, we always had that you know that sort of hands-on background um in our family and um so but at a certain point, you know, I had the opportunity to teach part time while I was working in an office, working for an architecture firm. Mm -hmm. And that really got me excited because people, you know, students, especially in early parts of their education are asking like really basic questions that have like really profound answers. Like, how do you make decisions about, you know, how space should be organized? Right. And so you have to ask them yourself and these things that you've taken for granted in, in your practice and in, in building stuff and drawing stuff. Um, you have to now re-examine and go, okay, well, what is important about that? You know, what is, what is interesting about that? Mm -hmm. So um, in getting more involved with teaching, I had the chance to uh, apply for, you know, more full-time tenure track positions. And I made the choice to sort of take my design aspirations and, you know, bracket them a little bit, limit them a little bit. Instead of being primarily a designer who taught a little bit, I was now have the chance to become 
primarily a teacher who designed a little bit. Ooh, cool. And one of the things that that I, you know, naively um naively discovered that in university education, um, what administrators will ask you is, well, what is your what is your what are your research interests? You know, mm. for because of course we're expected to teach, we're expected to um to perform service to the community. And the third sure. pillar is research and the production of new knowledge. And that was another aha moment for me because I said, well, I think I can go back and figure out, I want to figure out what all this stuff was about. I want to figure out what's behind the cool, compelling rendering or painting of a city in space and find out, you know, connect to those basic questions of like, how do we design, how and why do we design it this way instead of this other way? So to, to link up these basic questions about like, how do we organize human life in in a space in any space like the mm -hmm. spaces that we're occupying right now um and how and why is this part of that of that conversation mm. so this stuff you know i think and, and part of my kind of my bigger agenda over the past seven years when i've had the chance to to follow these paths and go and figure out like okay what was up with that what was up with that crazy rendering that was in this book that I, you know, find in my parents' bookshelf when I'm five. <laughs> um, often the answer is, well, there are all these clear connections to the mainstream of design culture, of uh, of the histories of architecture and urban design that um, that my discipline, you know, thinks are kind of more or less self-contained, right? No, it mm -hmm, leaks out, mm -hmm. and there's all these there's all these conversations going on between science fiction and design history yep. that go in both directions. Um, speculative practices learn from real practices and and vice versa. So that's been kind of the the overall theme mm -hmm. to the kind of work that I like to do best lately okay. is to is to tell people in architecture and urban design, hey, you should be interested in this stuff. Don't just put it in a box and call it genre and ignore it. It's related right. to what we do. And then at the same time to talk to people in space science and science fiction and say, hey, you know, you can also learn from all these other disciplines that have been thinking about the future and thinking about space and culture for a long time. And to make that connection has been really cool. Oh, that's great. And then, so uh, I guess th this will be a good uh, segue into your professorship, I guess, and your programs. But um, first, but right before we get to that, when you were bringing this up, it really reminded me of, and, and this is kind of uh, interesting and uh, timely, is that for a research paper I had to do this past year for this thing called Great Debates, there was one paper called Epistemic Activism by Amy Hamrawi, basically design <laughs> expertise as a site of intervention. And so it yeah. talked about Ronald Mace uh, basically being this disabled uh, kind of uh, architect was would, couldn't even get into a school program, but then basically said, I don't care. I'm just going to go be it. And then he became this like famous architect. And then he, you know, influenced a bunch of generations and stuff like that. So basically going up the, uh, I guess you could say, uh, upstream, as you could say. So in that kind of regard of you, like how, how do the, I mean, access is a huge deal nowadays, uh, it, it's more so maybe than, than historical. Um, so I, I just thought of that in her book, um, universal design and the politics of disability. So like, how do you think about not just like access? Cause that's one, one lens or one kind of, uh, um, type of thinking, but how do you kind of incorporate multiple, I guess you could say a multiple, you know, kind of uh, interests and value systems, et cetera, um, into, into, you know, design. Cause I, I'm assuming that is a, 
that's a tall task <laughs> at, at, at face value. Uh, and then we can kind of maybe get into your professorship. So I didn't know if that resonates with you, if you have things to talk about, but that just kind of came, came uh, to, to, to thought. Oh, totally. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the history of, um, of legislation, um, things mm. like the Americans with Disabilities Act. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, that that upstream the sort of upstream practices that you're talking about is a great way to to frame it that's a that's a, a, a nice framing um you know you think about activists climbing the steps of the supreme court getting out of getting out of wheelchairs and demonstrating yep. with their bodies the way that the organization of the space conditions and allows yeah. a certain kind of person to be yeah. invited in and a certain kind of person to be excluded um and also the image of activists taking jackhammers to sidewalks to make their own literal curb cuts. Oh, right? the, oh okay, okay, okay. To cut okay. to cut into the curb um and to directly engage with like, okay, well, who gets to make space? It's not mm -hmm. just municipalities and civil engineers and the legislation that they use as their tools. It's me with my jackhammer and I'm gonna make this space into something <laughs> that allows for yeah. a different kind of use than it had originally been intended. And you know, and in my teaching, I'm I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to teach at one of America's HBCUs, historically mm -hmm. black colleges and universities. And they're all a we're, we are a hundred we are 155 years old this year, Morgan State University in Baltimore. And uh, that 155-year point, of course, reaches back to the end of the Civil War and the American yeah. Reconstruction, when we had this moment in history where people who didn't have access to higher education all of a sudden started to have new opportunities to gain that access. Mm -hmm. So when, when I think about access to space, it means all those things at once, right? It means like who gets to cross the street and be able to use a public space like a sidewalk mm -hmm. it means who gets to have a higher education who gets to have access to the space of higher education mm -hmm. it also means access to the future it means access to the new spaces that humans will inevitably make in our future worlds and foregrounding that question of access has been um i hope for me you know a really a really strong and, and it's been a, a very productive theme you know Mm -hmm. in in my own work whenever i ask those kinds of questions to primary material when i bring whenever i bring those kinds of questions to primary material you get you tend to get interesting answers because embedded in the design of new worlds are sometimes you know explicit but more often implicit ideas about who they are for mm -hmm. so um so making sure that we are explicitly answering that question with as broad a with as broad a category you know as possible has been uh a really kind of useful useful tool in the in the toolkit that, yeah. I, that you know I, I feel like I'm starting to gather that's great and well awesome to hear and so I guess let's let's go into a little bit more depth of of your actual professorship so you're the uh, associate professor and program director of graduate architecture Department of Graduate Built Environment Studies in the School of Architecture and Planning at Morgan State University. So like how, um, I mean, an STS and science technology studies, like that's one of the biggest things of the materiality of things and how values yeah. are hard coded inside of technologies and certain affordances, defordances. So I guess moving past uh Thinking in terms of access, et cetera. What what do you how how do you get people to kind of think uh, a little bit more in terms of 
I don't know, sociocultural, sociopolitical, these kind of bigger kind of themes in design and your teaching. And then maybe just talk us through some of the classes that you teach or some, how, how do you kind of go about doing this? Because again, being a head of a department is one, one thing, but then also being a head of a department, um, as you said, as a HBSE, uh, then I, I think that you probably have some interesting kind of uh, tidbits, not just to say about your profession, but then also, again, the space that you're located within, which is quite interesting uh, in, in Baltimore. Well, I've, I've learned so much from um from your colleagues in uh, anthropology and science and technology yeah. studies. And I'm really, I'm, I'm just, I'm a huge fan of STS uh, for so many reasons. I appreciate yeah. just the the generosity of uh, of the practice of mm-hmm. the, that's inherent in, in the approach that you all use, that you all bring to the things that you study. And also the, of course, the kinds of questions that, that you all ask that, that focus on, okay, what's the stuff who's in the room, you know, what are they bringing? What kind of backgrounds do they have? Yep. Um, you know, my, my friend and, and colleague, uh, Lisa Masseri, who's an anthropologist in STS. Um, she, she likes to say who, who makes, and I'm, I'll be, I'll paraphrase and I, forgive me, Lisa, for getting it wrong, but who, who makes the spaces in which spaces are made, you know, Ooh. kind of building on, right. on questions, you know, that Donna Haraway and others yeah, ask, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think it's really it's really important to uh, to 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 understand where you're from, right? Mm-hmm. And understand like wh- and then where you're at. And so being in a place like Morgan, in a in a place like Baltimore, um, is a really great place. To, it's a really great set of rooms in which to make the future. And I, I yeah. like to think that that that's that kind of practice and centering those kinds of of awarenesses, you know, is central to what we do. We had and and. For example, you know, in, in the in the 2020 uh, kind of iteration of the Black Lives Matter moment, uh-huh. when these conversations came to the forefront, um, we had a lot of uh, a lot of people from other universities asking, like, okay, how do we decolonize our curriculum? How do we how do we think about we've been thinking about form, but how do we integrate conversations about justice, spatial justice, into conversations about space and form? Um, and Morgan is a place where, where we've been having those conversations for a, a long, long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And we talk about explicitly, you know, and for example, my urban design class, uh, questions about the historical, you know, the historical reasons for why Baltimore is the way it is, right? Mm-hmm. We can still read patterns of redlining and um, systemic disinvestment in current demographics today, yeah. right? If you, if you superimpose the red line map, on the map of say, you know, life expectancy at birth uh, by zip code, it's the same map, right? So these, these, and these questions are spatial questions. Um, integration and segregation are spatial practices. And understanding that, that a place like an HBCU uh, to talk about spatial justice and race mm-hmm. brings a lot of inherent histories. Most oh. HBCUs were integrated before Brown versus Board of Education. HBCUs invited white students in before white institutions invited black students, um, which I think is a fascinating aspect of of institutional history. Um, I'm aware every day, you know, as a as a white academic teaching at an HBCU that that this is a place that's not designed to center people who look like me. And yet I am a valued guest in the space. And I think that's an important kind of experience that a lot of people could benefit from. Uh, in in my environmental controls class, we talk about things like 
how and why is the air designed the way mm -hmm. it is, right? We take for granted in architecture that, okay, we, we design, you know, what the wall's made of, we design the dimensions and sizes and shapes of things. But we also design things like the air, like the surface of the ground, uh, for example, and, and does that include or exclude certain people by design? Um, there's a, there are so many, uh, there's so many ways into the question of who the space is for that I think architecture as a discipline sometimes forgets and sometimes remembers. And it's <laughs> great that we're in a moment where my discipline is interested in actively remembering. But places like HBCUs are uh, are important for so many reasons, not the least. There are places where if you want to know, you know, where that conversation has been going on, come here yeah, you know, yeah. and, talk, <laughs> and talk with us and ask questions and listen, um, because it might be new to you or it might be being remembered, you know, by certain aspects of the discipline or by institutions. But some people never forgot. And right. some places um, you can't forget. So I guess my follow-up question for for some of that would be uh, not to, I mean, you're definitely doing some epistemic activism in in kind of the spaces and stuff, but I guess my question for you would be a little bit more personal and like, how, how do you see or what do you get out of kind of teaching the future? Because if we're designing for the future, but then you're also molding minds in the future, like, I don't know if you have any specific things of like, did you, have you always do you just love teaching or is it just kind of a thing to to have? Uh, and then you kind of found a, a great opportunity in, in Morgan State, because um, I think for a lot of people, at least academics, uh, the professorship is really, I wouldn't say a calling, but there are people who like enjoy it for for just the, the, the teaching aspect of the molding of the minds, et cetera. And I don't know if you kind of follow along that camp, because in the next question would be some of your other work, uh, the working group on adaptive systems and things like that. So I guess we, we'll, we'll wait for a second, but what are, what are kind of your your thoughts on just teaching and, and molding specific, you know, society minds, not just places and, and et cetera? Well, for me, it goes back to um, the the question of concreteness. Um, mm. It's, I like, okay. I like design education specifically because there are always things in the space to point to, right? I, I could, I have, I'm here just with blank, <laughs> blank examples. background because I haven't cleaned up uh, the other <laughs> half of my office, but you know, we're, we're in very specific spaces with tons of examples to yeah. discuss. And, and what I think, what is the core of, of my teaching practice is being able to remind students and to, uh, to sort of unlock within them the sense that somebody made everything in your field of view and in the space that you're occupying. It's not inevitable, like the weather, it didn't, you know, it didn't happen due to, you know, strange cosmic forces beyond our control and understanding, <laughs> right? Um, there are reasons why certain decisions would, were made and certain decisions could have gone otherwise. Yeah. And th that practice, you know, happened in a room with specific people, right? Um, again, specificity and concreteness come into play. And you you will be able to be in that room. You should be in that room, right? That right. That is the, the core of my practice is to, is to look around and say, everything that exists was was made it was made by means of specific decisions and relationships and intentions and limitations. You can participate in that process and you mm -hmm. should, that process needs you to participate in it because if you don't, someone else will. Yeah. So that's, that's been the core of my, I, I don't, I, I don't swing hammers or frame buildings or, or, uh, or uh, not the least, I don't jackhammer sidewalks. And uh, I'm very grateful for the people who do that. 
Um, but, but you know, the, the the methodology of teaching is to to remember that that those people who do, you know, matter, and that mm-hmm. you can be one of them. Um, and I think that's really really important, and that that's something that I center uh, in in design studio and in um, the seminars that I teach. You know, I think I teach in in seminars. I, t- I teach beginning design studio. So design studio for graduate students who are coming in with like no background in design. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also teach at two scales. I teach urban design, you know, at the bigger sort of scale and environmental controls, which is like building right. systems and, um, and lighting sound, you know, so it's like the scale of the room and the scale of the city. Oh, very uh, nice. And it's great to be able to, to work with the same students at those, all those multiple scales and to talk about how they all interrelate and connect and how they, they are all the way they are because of specific human decisions and human relationships. And that you need to be a part of that system. You need to be a part of those relationships and conversations and decision-making processes. Well said. Um, So I guess moving on from like academia and and teaching stuff, that that was super cool because now I'm kind of thinking of some other stuff, but I'll, I'll wait till, till the other parts. But so let's let's talk quickly about your the working group on adaptive systems. I thought this was so interesting, cool on your website. So, quote, the working group on adaptive systems is an art, design, and research consultancy based in Baltimore, Maryland. We are interested in cities, spaces, people, and the things that connect them to each other and to the larger world. So very much when we were just kind of talking about. And so I guess I'll, I'll just pick three that I, I really kind of felt, and then maybe we can, we can go from there. Uh, so first and foremost, obviously, with the space and uh, Donna Haraway and all the rest of it, the Non-Human Autonomous Space Agency, thought that was super interesting of, of sorts. Uh, there's been plenty of animals that have gone up into uh, into space via NASA, uh, Cosmo drone, et cetera. But the Non-Human Autonomous Space Agency, uh, tell us um, first, I guess, a little bit about the Working Group and Adaptive Systems, and then kind of these other projects that uh, you you might want to want to go a little deeper. The second and third one was the Evergreen Commons, loved that. And then also mm-hmm. mapping and master planning. Again, kind of so that, you know, kind of cutesy, et cetera, but then the evergreen comments and the master and master plan mapping and master planning was super interesting in terms of like, you know, policy governance, et cetera. So maybe just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. It's some deep cuts. I like it. Uh, <laughs> so the, the, the working group on adaptive systems broadly has been sort of my, my kind of venue in which I get to like play with others. Um, yeah. And that means people, cool. you know, that means it's, the, the funny thing, the, this private joke in calling it the working group is this is really just me. <laughs> yeah. But with every project, I, I bring in I bring in other people and collaborate with people from other disciplines, with artists, with writers, with uh, cool. you know people in anthropology and sociology. Uh, it's a chance to play with others, and and whatever the outcome is, they can call it something completely different, right? I mean, they might have a completely different agenda for the project, or uh, or even a different title or something like that. Um, so it's a, it's a venue in which like, you know, collaboration can be centralized because it's always like me plus others. And so for, um, for things like Evergreen Commons, um, one of the things with three primary collaborators that worked on that project, myself and, and my friends, Eric Lashinsky and, uh, Ryan Patterson, Ryan Patterson works in public art and arts administration. Uh, Eric is an artist and a planner. And what we wanted to do, we had the opportunity to um, to work on a an 18th century, the grounds of an 18th century mansion that has this sculpture biennale, uh, of course, every two years. So we were commissioned to propose a project for that. What we wanted to do was immediately sort of pass the baton to other people. 
we want to make a platform for other people to come and participate. So we took, we basically, we didn't keep any of the money. Um, we actually lost a ton of money building what we built, which was the sort of framework of an urban public space. Mm-hmm. So it was a hardscape in, in this, you know, lush, uh, green fields on the grounds of the historic estate, we built a piece of the city. We built a sort of harder, grittier um, uh, place that people could just hang out in um, with a basketball hoop, with benches, with even trash cans and things like that, chain link fence. Um, and we invited other people to do installations and events in that space as a platform. So we had things like um, Things like the artist Sarah Doherty, who's who's casting uh, Cabbage Patch Kids into concrete and making like planters and all kinds of strange and interesting public monuments um, as part of her practice. So she came in and did work. Um, we had Gary Cachadorian, who's an artist who um, who reproduces like textures and patterns at scale. He sort of draws them really small and then he blows them up on a Xerox machine back to full scale. Oh, whoa. So okay. He made us a cinder block wall. You know, but it was oh, a draw. Yeah, it was okay. a Xerox drawing of a cinder block wall <laughs> made in an eight and a half by eleven. That's then you know the size of a real cinder block wall. So it was a chance to again play with others and 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 help in the co-production of a kind of world where mm. you're giving away some of those resources and control and specificity and saying like, okay, let's let's see what's possible or let's just get all get together and and make the space ourselves, you know, as a group. And then with um with something like the non-human autonomous space agency, that was a point in in my own research about space cities and the future of human space habitation, where I wanted to to step back from research and and act again as a designer and say, okay, well, I'm I'm reading and writing and and interviewing people about, you know, these big rotating habitats in space in the future. Um, hey, Fred, you're a designer too. Why don't you design one of these things? Right, so, you know, immediately right. that question of who who gets to go um, yeah, yeah, yeah. comes into the yeah. forefront. And I was making these, I wanted to center the the things that people do really get excited about, which is like, like Leica. If you say the word Leica, you know, anywhere globally, right? We understand, okay, that's yeah, the, the cute little dog that... that the Russians launched into space. Literally, the first Earthling in space was oh was yes, a yes, dog from the streets yeah. of of Moscow, um, and uh, and everybody. Every, she was on ceramics. She was on you know. It was in the newspaper. Uh, it's a very sad story because they didn't plan for her to survive the return to yeah. Earth. Um, <laughs> so we, we hold that at bay for a moment. Yeah. Um, and so so I I wanted to center the, the kind of other kinds of non-human existence and to think about making a future that's explicitly for them. The other, the other thread that that project brings in is that NASA and the space agencies always give these cute names to, to the rovers and the robots now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they sometimes give them Twitter accounts and they, they speak in the first person and they talk about, Oh, here's an update on my adventures, you know, on the search of Mars. So, and then they die, right? <laughs> Everybody's sad again, because we had this emotional relationship, you know, with the uh, with the artifact, with the technology, right? right? right, this is, right. This is, again, science and technology studies how people uh, think about their relationships with these with these bigger systems. Um, so I was drawing and sketching, you know, things like coming up with ideas for a space habitat that I might want to design. The human presence just gradually sort of faded away. <laughs> okay. And at one point, yeah. I had people like living in tents among these sort of more <laughs> 
more um, organized wilderness spaces. Okay. But the tents just disappeared, and I decided, you know what? No humans get to go at all. It's only cute animals and robots that get Amazing. to go. And we can and follow manatees. along with them via Twitter. <laughs> we can follow along with them via, you know, TikTok. They could just they could record videos. They can share their adventures with us. But the space is for them. It's yeah, not yeah. for us. Yeah. Right. So that was a, a way for you know, to think like really explicitly about like about who a future is for and how how many deep interconnections we have with these other kinds of existence that are not really human at all. You know, they are our companion species or our cyborgs, you know, as again, Donna Haraway might talk about. Um, mm -hmm. They are important to any human future. I mean, the most, uh, I used to raise chickens and the most uh, populous sort of non-insect animal on the planet is is the bird, right? Birds are the most common wow. animal if you, if you discount insects. The most uh, common bird is the domestic chicken. Uh, so <laughs> if great. we go to Mars, we humans go to Mars. If there is a if there ever is a bird on Mars, it will almost certainly be a chicken, right. a domestic chicken, right? <laughs> Chickens will be the first birds on Mars. And Amazing. I think that if if you look at space history and speculative space futures through those lenses, uh, a lot of fascinating things open up. Plus, I got to make, you know, all these renderings with like manatees floating. And that's and, what originally made me click top. on it. And then go, we went down the rabbit hole because of that. So good job for your illustration. <laughs> I just really love manatees. They, they remind me of the, the space shuttle. They're yeah. kind of like a little bit goofy and ungainly, you know, a little bit like strangely bulky in weird places. And oh, you go funny. like, oh, why does it look like that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they're engaging, right? Like the, the space shuttle is just instantly recognizable to any kid, even though no space shuttle has flown since like 2011. Yeah, it's been a minute. Um, yeah, it's true. still an icon, right? And we have this emotional relationship with it. So there was a resonance there, you know, too, between, um, between you know, sea creatures and ships and things like that, um, the way they move in weightless environments. Yeah. Is similar. So, so that that's great. So, I guess finishing up with the, kind of the working group on adaptive ad, adaptive systems, excuse me. And I'll I'll put some links in, and maybe we put even like the manatee up and and stuff. But uh, <laughs> I guess now that we're here and talking about this, I think you brought up something really interesting that uh, I I wanted to make sure. I guess we just plug in the question is is about scales. So, I mean, a lot of interrelatedness in today's world is like just nested within scales, and it's just like how deep do you want to go? You know, down the rabbit hole, down or up. It doesn't really matter. So um, one of the things you brought up that was pertinent to me, especially that goes with like urban planning, et cetera, is that now I've kind of come around to the idea and that this is not like some crazy thought, but like, you know, nation states as it is today, or even the state system in the United States just really doesn't, it's it's not really working anymore. And so one of the things that I've kind of really taken up as a, as a personal cause or whatever to go forward is bioregional governance and like how that is really, you know, the scale, if you will, of really a lot of decision-making because you mentioned how, do, how do people in Baltimore get their water or their air or, you know, et cetera. And then, and how things are, are historically situated from way back when, I mean, here in Los Angeles, when I was there, like the pollution, you know, uh, is most, mostly on black and black and brown people and, and, and kind of that kind of, uh, uh, in other cities too it's not just los angeles but like where pollution is and and all this kind of stuff so where do you have any thoughts on like scaling of of, of sorts um and then anything else i mean i just threw in the bioregionalist because that's just kind of my my thing but i think something to be said about scaling or something uh, is i think pertinent to this kind of conversation i don't know if you wanted to riff on that a little bit oh yeah for sure no i'm i'm 
I mean, one built into the to the name too, the working group on adaptive systems is that idea of systems and mm-hmm. how um, how systems become visible or legible or interactive um, yeah. with the people who are who are subject to them or or who design them, right? So it flows both ways, right? We yeah. we try to change systems, we try to design systems from the ground up. We try to systems also change us, and systems also sort of co-design um, our set of possibilities and our set of possible worlds. And so making those things legible um, is is something that I'm really interested in thinking about and reading about. You know, as I'm, as I'm looking at my bookshelf over here, I've got uh, Shannon Mattern's uh, Code and Clay. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. You know, and she she's one of many people who, uh, who are really directly engaged in this question of, at the really macro level. Like, how do you make systems legible? And um, for me, one of the answers has been like the something like the mascot, you know, which is also what the manatee and the space shuttle are, you know, they're kind of mascots for these big, super complicated, hard to understand interconnected systems. Mm. Um, in the case of the space shuttle, we tend to think of it as just this autonomous thing. Like it can just, Oh, go and fly to space oh, right. whenever it wants and come back. Right. <laughs> but there's this whole, there's nothing that's more dependent than a spaceship, right? There's nothing that's more systems dependent right. than, uh, than something like a spacecraft. And all that is is sort of captured, but sort of also hidden by the figure of the shuttle itself you know, as an icon, as a mascot. Um, so that question of of how do we make systems legible and and more kind of interactive is something that's really really fascinating. Um, one of the one of the other things that that one of the other projects that I got to work on as part of the working group on adaptive systems was a scale model of the solar system, uh, which was, Oh, really? Yeah. So I I got the chance to, uh, it was one to 2.8 billion. So the sun was (laughs) an 18 inch sphere. And so I installed this, it stretched a mile and a half through downtown Baltimore. Oh, that's sick. I've seen a couple of those like out in the desert or other places. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, this was just temporary. Yeah. We see like YouTube videos go viral of like guys hop in a Jeep and they drive, (laughs) you know, or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, this was, you know, the mile and a half was a good scale because we could walk it and ah, okay, uh, during cool. this festival. So I commissioned nine artists to design the nine planets, which is which is another kind of chance to just hand it over and to bring others on board and say, OK, well, what would you make? You know, you could do anything you want and call it Earth, but it should be about this big and I should be able to mount it on this specific like mounting system that I designed. Other than that, make it make it whatever you want. And two of my former students collaborated to make uh earth out of neodymium uh rare earth magnet that is essential oh. to things like cell phones and computers and uh solar panels so they literally made like a, a rare a rare earth earth, earth. <laughs> love it fantastic love it. um so it, and this is during an arts festival that takes place regularly in, in baltimore in the summertime so it was a commission you know for a temporary limited installation mm-hmm. and but but what was fun was I got to lead, I decided to lead walking tours of the solar system. So even, you know, some friends who were on the city council like joined and you can make the systems of the solar system and the scale of the solar system legible in so many ways when you're occupying it with your body. You can say mm. that well, we're walking at an average walking pace here as we go from, say, Mars to Jupiter, um, at an average walking pace, we're traveling at scale 13 times the speed of light. Aha, uh-huh, cool, cool. Of course, it's yeah, impossible yeah. to move yeah, that yeah. fast based yep. on the laws of physics. So it really puts it, it you feel the solar system in your body 
And even in a way, it feels funny describing it now because of course I'd seen all those YouTube videos and was aware, you know, in Sweden, they have one of these in a public park and things like that. Yep. But to have walked the the solar system with, to have, to have moved my body and, and, you know, other people and had these conversations from the sun all the way out to Pluto, uh, I'll never forget the scale. So there's an embodiment, you know, is another kind of, kind of way that I think, you know, again, bringing back to concreteness, we're in a space, we have certain kinds of mobility uh, uh, abilities, right, to, mm -hmm. to move through the space. Um, what, what do we, what sort of understanding do we gain from being in this space and observing the materiality of a, of a black rare earth? Um, right. So, so that's been another kind of uh, a way to talk about big, usually invisible systems um, in a very concrete way. No, that's that's super cool, and it reminds me. Uh, I'll have to maybe send you this uh, off like later or something. But actually, for Christmas a couple of years ago, we got this thing. It was like geological time, so we it was a walking kind of podcast. So like you walk, say for you know three hours, but through that you go through the time of Earth, you know, in these scales. So very cool in those kind of ways of wow, uh, multi yeah. multimedia, but then scale. So so very cool. But um, let let's move on to 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 I guess you could say space things and and the main kind of topic of today's discussion. Um, last year, you wrote a book uh, for Verso Books, lo love their books, uh, Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space, quote, the radical history of space exploration from the Russian cosmos, excuse me, to Elon Musk. Uh, so I guess, Fred, how can we really think critically about the history of life in, in outer space? I mean, I know that's a softball question, but I guess we can get into it deep, deep <laughs> deeper of that. Um, first, like, how did, how did you want to think about this? Why, again, life in outer space and not something else? Uh, you know, wh wh and why maybe the, the title Space Forces? How, mu how much did you, you know, do with that? So let, let's just get into that. Yeah, I think again, you know, going back to uh, to anthropology, uh, I, I borrow uh, quite often a concept from from again Lisa Masseri, the idea of a planetary imagination, and mm. um, and for Lisa, it's about you know thinking about um, planets that aren't Earth and how humans construct ideas about what they're like and how humans communicate you know to each other about what they might be like. I find it interesting to bring it back to Earth and say, okay, well what sort of interpretation of our own planet, you know, is embedded in these plans for future worlds away from earth, right? Anytime someone is telling you that they want to make a new world in the future or, um, or a new world away from earth, one question that's immediately really interesting to ask is, okay, what, what is important to you about a world in the first place? Mm -hmm. You know, what is, what is in a sense, the, the essence of your, uh, planetary, your particular planetary imagination. And it turns out that space futures over the, the course of, you know, 150 years or so, which I date from, from, as you said, the Russian cosmos, but also because that was the first moment where humans had the math to prove that this was possible. Oh, like sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not only had the imagination, because of course, humans have been thinking about living in space in all kinds of fantastical ways, but Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who was, you know, more or less the first rocket scientist, was able to show mathematically that with energy resources available, we could launch something like a rocket into orbit. And hey, what does that mean for human futures in space? Mm -hmm, um, so mm -hmm. it's tying, you know, the sense of what was desirable to the sense of what was possible for the first time. Every space future, and I, I examined seven of them in detail in the book, um, all the way, you know, through this 150 year timeline. Every space future has embedded within it 
a kind of planetary imagination. Mm-hmm. And they often end up being very different planetary imaginations. So when you ask, when you you know approach a body of material about a possible space future, whether that's a space future is put forward by, say, Jeff Bezos or um, or Werner von Braun, or um, or you know many of the the figures that I look at, um, when you ask them like, okay, what do you think a world is for, and what's important to you about a world, you get very different answers. Yeah, um, and so that's the methodology of the book, and it really starts again with. Um, with roots in, and again, anthropology and STS. And then, so I think also in some of the description is super interesting to see that, like how much of uh, speculative fiction, science fiction, you know, those kind of things are, are not like you're talking about planetary imaginations. It's not just like what's in textbooks, uh, um, et cetera. You know, what are, what are kind of our imaginations about such um, how, how did you really kind of thread the needle? I guess you could say of like taking, um, the, uh, interesting parts of say science fiction, because for, for me, at least I I've seen maybe a resurgence in more like, um, I wouldn't say agnostic or not utopic because usually science fiction is very dystopic, you know, the cyberpunk, like sit, telling us what not to do, I guess you could say. And until I want to say then somebody guess, goes and does it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. No, it's, it's like that meme of, you know, it, it's scientists, it made that thing that they just said the, you know, <laughs> right. face eaters or whatever it was, you know? Um, but then science fiction is very interesting of like, so, you know, it can change on its head with like the Arrival uh, movie or, or the short story with Ted Chiang that was mm-hmm. like super kind of interesting or, you know, the stuff with AI of usually it's Terminator style, but then you have uh, other kind of depictions. So for me, I, I just wanted to really kind of see as an author and a writer, like how do you kind of bring those kind of interesting things in, but then also like ground them in the material reality that we were just talking about of what, the, like, you know, there are certain value systems that maybe in certain countries uh, go go with certain sci-fi themes and and, and others go with others. So maybe how, how do you just think about that? And I guess uh, putting the nonfiction and the fiction together, if you will, in, in making something of a of a book like this, because I thought it was super interesting that you could be able to do that. But as an author and a writer, I also am interested in, well, how do you do that? (laughs) Yeah, it's tough, right? I mean, that's the other side of the coin of like, follow your own weird obsessions and turn them into academic research. Yeah, nobody would want to, if I just wrote a book about here's, here's all Fred's favorite, you know, authors and movie makers, and here's why he thinks they're cool. Like nobody would want to read that. That would be a boring book. I wouldn't want to write that even. You've got to mobilize it in a way that, that, fits into a bigger picture and is understandable to other people who aren't, you know, neck deep in this stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, in the first place. And I mean, luckily, I mean, not luckily, but but it turns out that that again, that compartmentalization that we often take for granted doesn't really exist. That mm-hmm. um that just like between just just like borders that might, you know, we might imagine between architecture and urban design and space what I think of as spatial practices broadly and science fiction those borders are very porous and probably not really existent you know in the first place in any meaningful way Mm -hmm. so what i found uh also was that borders between plausible futures uh speculative futures you know as put forth by people like uh like arthur c clark and um and gerard o'neill in the 1970s uh Borders between these this sort of narrative of plausibility. Here's what your life will be like 50 years from now. I guarantee it. Science proves it. And science and fiction, those borders are are not existent really either. Yeah. That um uh, that it really is this sort of cross connection. There are these, there, there are these constant conversations that go on between and across these different disciplines and these different ways of thinking. Um so 
So it was it was important to me to make those connections explicit and to bring that conversation up to the surface and say like, okay, who's who's reading who and who's in dialogue with who. Um, you know, Arthur C. Clarke is a person who moves seamlessly between these these worlds. Yeah. He's working in plausibility. He's working in possibility. Um, so that was one thing. Like it was it was a direct challenge to myself to make those connections. Uh, one explicit, but two, like meaningful, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Again, you know, and, and where meaning comes in for me, uh, I think is exactly where you identify uh, in the function of utopianism and, and dystopianism. Uh, because to me, what I started, what I sort of started to realize, of course, others have written about this as well. But what I started to realize is that if utopian or dystopian science fiction and speculative future as a general kind of way of thinking fictionally or not, if that's doing its job right, it's functioning as a critique of the present, as a mm -hmm. critique of a kind of existent planetary imagination that exists in practice today. And so, uh, you know, I think dystopia and utopia are, and of course, Frederick Jameson writes about this in some of his work on science fiction, uh, among others, but I think they're the same type of thing. And I think that thing is a critical perspective on the present. It's not a blueprint for okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going right, to, you right. know, take this stuff from the moon and it has this percent silica and this percent aluminum and we can build windows out of the silica and structure out of the aluminum. That doesn't, that doesn't matter, right? Um, what it's doing is critiquing, you know, how something like how we use resources in general. Yep. Why do we look at the moon and we see, oh, how much aluminum and silica is in there? What can I do with it, right? That's a planetary imagination. So um, science fiction generally, what its, what its function in that loop is, one of its major functions in that conversation across disciplines is to offer critiques of existent status quos that we take for granted. Like, hey, what? well, a planet is for me digging it up and taking it apart into stuff that I can use, right? That's a planetary imagination that deserves critique. And science fiction is where that critique happens, I think, most cogently. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty, yeah, there's plenty of uh, examples of that that we, I could list off of that. But my follow-up question with some of those uh, speculative futures and value kind of laden assessments and things, do, is there anything that was kind of maybe left on the cutting room floor or are there other kind of movements that uh, maybe you're familiar with or want to talk about? Um, I, I'm assuming at Morgan State, there's maybe something to do with Afrofuturism, uh, you know, solar punk, lunar punk. Um, crypt, crypt space, which is super interesting. I didn't really know about. Uh, and then it kind of wowed me is the idea is that if you have kind of disabled bodies in space, well, but they are, you know, directly, uh, or, I mean, sorry, taking a step back, it, the astronauts lose their, their bone density a lot, like in space. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. some people were saying that, well, what if you put someone that <laughs> already has low bone density in space that, you know, those kind of things and, and, and bodies in space. So don't know if you have any other kind of uh, movements that you can kind of talk about that maybe are not in the book, or you want to specifically go into more of the book, but I think it's, 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 we need to kind of continue on the thread of the planetary imagination and world buildings, because it really is, how do we even, before policy and design and all that is how we think about this, you know, really. And so I don't know if you want to kind of take it, take us a little bit more in depth with that. Oh yeah. I mean, there's so much that, that made it, that ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I can it imagine. Ended up, <laughs> it ended up being, you know, paths that I, that, that I think you, you start down and you go, oh wow, there's a whole set of things there that, sure. that, uh, that deserve to be engaged with more directly in a way that I, I don't have the space for right now. Yeah. And among those, I think was, was able to get, engage a little bit with uh, questions of Afrofuturist speculations, 
Um, you know, one of the things that's fascinating for me about uh, about Sun Ra, you know, as a kind of previous generation of Afrofuturist practitioner, is that when you go back to his primary texts, he he was talking about moving all Black people off of Earth into a, another planet where white people wouldn't be allowed, you know, which is a fascinating question, a fascinating speculation uh, that ties directly to concrete, you know, spaces like yep. HBCUs um, and questions of, of who a space is for, you know, is spatial justice, is, is that a broad enough concept that it includes, you know, the creation of a whole kind of separate planet for people who have been treated unjustly um, in the Black diaspora? It's a totally fascinating question because it comes back to uh, I think the one of the things that people get excited about when they think about space is this idea of infinity and this mm. idea of a potential kind of hyper pluralism that goes along with access to, you know, a lot of resources, access to a lot of energy, access to a lot of space. Space is big. Um, how many types of existence are possible? Uh, you know, the question, the answer to that question might be very large or it might be you know, it might end up being very small. So in many ways, the the, the set of things that you bring up here about uh, disability in space, about Afrofutures, about, um, about uh, they, they're about the, the, the shifting away from the, the idea that a, a white male able-bodied man, cisgender man, is a default subject, yep. uh, which is, which is really exciting and interesting. Uh, and, uh, for me, what goes back to if there is like a uh, a set of ideas that captures what's interesting about that question, it exists again both the beginning and and the end or the current moment that we have here uh, in terms of space history. At the beginning, when the co the Russian cosmists were talking about having access to you know infinite amounts of space, room, and resources, and energy, uh, they wanted to just infinitely re reproduce the past. We're going to resurrect okay. every human who ever lived, <laughs> make them immortal. And uh, we're going to populate the solar system and the universe with, with every human who already lived. Right? There's right. this repetition of the past. There was a sort of a, a schism there in that in that movement, and uh, in the early 20th century in, in Russia, where some people were saying like, "Well, no, we okay, we have access. We're gonna we want to live forever. We want to go anywhere. Right? Okay, with you in that part. But why can't we be anything we want to be? Why do we have to reproduce a past in this new?" possible future territory. So there's an argument to be made that 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 there was a critique of cosmism that I identify with with the term biocosmism, mm. which was adding, you know, freedom of form and and pluralistic, the possibility for infinitely pluralistic modes of existence to that freedom in time and freedom in terms of access to space. And that opens up a really interesting set of of conversations and consequences. Yeah. At the other end of space history, I think, and, I, and again, I touched on this a little bit in the conclusion to my book, but I think there's there's probably a whole other world out there down this path that I'm starting to tread, you know, maybe a little bit tentatively now is, you know, not what we think of as a speculative utopian critique of an existing status quo, usually international law. But it mm. turns out international law embodies, you know, many ideals that get left behind in concrete reality. So in documents like the Outer Space Treaty, um, and maybe more radically in the Moon Agreement, we find these, these legislative hints that that kind of pluralism is also possible and even desirable, and a way to sort of resolve this contradiction, I think, that comes up about identity and difference. 
the Outer Space Treaty, according to a, a generous reading, um, classifies anybody who goes into space as an astronaut. And it says that astronauts have certain rights and responsibilities to each other and to, you know, the bigger picture of, you know, other other astronauts and other humans generally, other people um, that that you have to you have to provide mutual aid if you're able to. You have to you have to be able to you have to be able to share things and you have to be able to help if you can, basically, wow. uh, which is which is, you know, a really kind of exciting, radical idea about how a body of people should organize themselves in the future and in space. So if we take the the Outer Space Treaty at its word, it says that even though all kinds of existence are, are possible, what we share in space is that we share this identity of the astronaut. Mm-hmm. And we share this these rights and responsibilities. So you might be a crippled astronaut, you might be a black astronaut, you might be a post-human cyborg astronaut, right? right? But you are a person who is carrying on activities in space. You have these rights and responsibilities and these obligations to one another, which is a really exciting way to resolve this contradiction about who gets to go, what they should be doing there, and how they should relate to one another. So you have this possibility for this infinitely pluralistic existence, as long as we understand our obligations to each other and how we need to enact or uh or embody and practice care in real material terms you need air i can offer air you need calories you're starving to death i can offer calories you're in a domestic violence situation i can help right like so so there's a set of 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 really exciting possibilities opened up you know through again utopianism but also you know the seemingly boring stuff about treaties and and law and material stuff oh yeah and how the one defines how the other should move around so i mean you you basically did did my job for for me in that i'm assuming this is coming a little bit too of your latest contribution space codes the astronaut and the architect in the forthcoming ratledge handbook of social studies of outer space because i saw alice gorman who is someone we will probably talk about edit is editing that. And then when I was looking through it, I saw your name there and I was like, Whoa, okay. He's in this as well. Okay, cool. So maybe, I mean, I don't know if you have other things that you want to riff on that, but I thought uh, that as soon as I saw that, I needed to ask you about that. Oh, totally. Um, and, and that was a great opportunity that, that Alice presented to, to sort of think about the next steps for some of these, um, some of these concepts and how they might lead to something, something in the future. Um for me, for me in that in that chapter, um, what I was trying to do was to was to inventory was to do 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 some boring work to inventory sort of what sort of right here as an as a person who practices architecture you have to adhere to all kinds of codes that govern what you're able to do right, right. I mean stairs have to be certain dimensions mm-hmm. um, windows you know if they're close to the ground they should be made out of glass that won't injure me if I break it. Um, all kinds of standards are built into the way the production of space is practiced. Yep. Um, that is happening. It will continue to happen in these territories off of earth. Right. And it happens at every scale. It happens at, happens at the scale of regional planning and, you know, where things should go and how they should be connected to one another. It happens at the scale of cities and settlements and, you know, the way that, you know, how does transportation work? How does, you know, how do we separate the things that are dangerous from the places where we live? Um, what is public space? How do we define uh, what public space should be? Um, and at the scale of the room, which we're talking about surfaces and the way, you know, the air is subject to code, right? The design of the air in the rooms sure. that we're sitting in um, has certain regulations attached to, certainly in the EU where, where you <laughs> yeah. are. Um, the air is very heavily regulated and that's a good thing. Um, but also to the scale of the person. Mm-hmm. So uh, a licensed architect has certain 
obligations to um, what is was written in North America, in North American law, as the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Mm. So that means that a licensed architect should not endanger health, safety, or welfare of of the public broadly defined, right? And that's an important bit of code because it it captures, hey, architects shouldn't just, you know, be tools of the profit motive of clients, right? Because mm -hmm. if that's left to run roughshod over over a public commons, then we won't get good outcomes. Oh, sure. Yep, yep, yep. So this this obligation to the public uh acknowledges, you know, certain things that could go wrong. Um and that when you when you again read the the letter of the law closely and and generously maybe as a as a way of enacting critical practice right this the law itself is a utopian critical practice um if i'm a licensed architect and i walk into a space that is not up to code i have an oblig even if i had nothing to do with the design of that space um according to one reading and this is a contested reading but according to one read i have an obligation to report that and, and help make that better right right so uh, so the figure of the architect and the figure of the astronaut, I think, have this consonance there uh, oh. in terms of their responsibility to their fellow public, you know, whether it's defined broadly as like the astronaut as everyone in space or the public, you know, which is everyone in the city of Baltimore, say. Um, yeah. And to and to take steps to help make things safer. So I, I get chills, you know, when I think about health, safety and welfare of the public. And the way that it, that is embodied, you know, by the figure of of the architect, and the way there is a rhyme there, there is a consonance there between um, the obligations and rights and responsibilities of the figure of the astronaut. So that's that's really what that article is about, and hopefully that is a roadmap for you know some future work as well. Oh no, that's so cool—the juxtaposition of not just the astronaut and the architect, but the, you know, combining them almost in this next thing that we're going to talk about is brick moon space and the idea yeah. of you know space architecture. So. Quote, unquote, uh, brick moon means better space habitats. Our unique perspective grounded in the social scientists, sciences and architectural design allows us to ask different kinds of questions about your desired habitats and get useful answers. So, so cool. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Mars City Design and Vera Mulyani. Are you familiar with them? Uh, oh, no, uh, that's my list, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So basically, I've worked, I was an intern, you know, five, five six years ago for them, and we helped to uh, do a Kickstarter, uh, but they basically basically do a design contest of like Mars habitats. And so it's kind of a cool like little thing. Um, and then also I did a uh, analog Mars simulation mission with the Mars Society. So I was a oh, crew perfect. journalist and like wow. went and stayed there for like two weeks in Southern Utah. Um, um, so I, yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Um, similar, similar, you know, Mars, whatever it was, it was, it was a very cool experience, but anyway, so tell us about, you know, space architecture and like kind of taking that architectural uh, I guess grounding as we could we've kind of got discussed and and what that means, but then also you know doing that in space of of uh, you know an, uh, an architect being an astronaut architect, if you will, and then brick moon space. How did it come about, uh, et cetera? Yeah, um, brick moon is a great uh, is a great chance to again work with others. In this case, others are uh, Justin Walsh and and Alice Gorman, aka Doctor Space Junk, who you mentioned yeah. <laughs> earlier, who's a who's a terrific colleague. They're both terrific colleagues, and it's been it's been cool to collaborate with them a little bit on their International Space Station archaeological project. Oh, right, right. Which yeah. They've been doing for a couple of years now yep. that produces all kinds of crazy results. And um, and we actually just last year, we were able to co-design an experiment that was carried out by actual astronauts doing active archaeology on the space station. Oh, dope. dope. Um, okay. That was around this time last year. Uh, so, 
so coming out of of that that work where I was able to collaborate a little bit with them, we had the chance to start talking with people who were designing things like space stations, next next generation space habitats yep. and vehicles, um, the spaces that humans occupy. And what we started to find is that is that on the one hand, there's a lot of like there, there's there's not a lot of sort of integration of like of aspects of the human element that people steeped in archaeology and architecture can't ignore. Um, of course, there's a lot of data about how how bodies, you know, as bodies work about bone loss and, you know, eyesight changes sure. and things like that that result from uh, living in microgravity for a long period of time. It's super dangerous to bodies, yeah. it turns out. Yeah. Way more dangerous than anybody like Werner von Braun or people from the 50s ever uh, suspected. But there's also questions about like, okay, well, how do people make culture together in a space, especially when they're coming from all kinds of different backgrounds, mm -hmm. um, right? Everybody's coming from a culture when they go up there. It's an international space station. Um, but also the space itself makes a culture, right? We make our spaces and our spaces make us. Um, so they're producing culture while they're there. Um, so, so besides the data and the engineering concerns, you know, that are usually captured by the term human factors uh, uh -huh. in these conversations, yep. there are all these cultural concerns too about how how spaces make cultures and cultures make spaces. Um, and what we wanted to be able to do was to do to 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 do two things with Rick Moon um, to be able to you know get away from the anecdote a little bit. A lot of the companies who uh, who design space habitats, they often have you know an advisor astronaut or advisor ex astronaut, you know, on their board or or that the, they the, they have you know on speed dials a go to consultant. The clout is there, yeah. The clout is there, but also the personal stories are there, For right? Sure. You know, what was what was the most what was the most difficult thing about living in space? Yeah, what was yeah, the yeah. most useful thing? What sort of you know opportunities do we have to improve next generation designs? It turns out you when you ask for stories, you get a lot of stories. And those are that's a limited perspective that that provides, especially if you're only talking to one or two astronauts. Yeah. Um, with the with the International Space Station Archaeological Project, Justin and Alice have a lot of bigger picture data. It's the question of scale again. Um, who is actually using what space and when, and with with who else in it? Um, and so they can look at that over a twenty year window totally. that isn't captured by a story from you know Paolo Nespoli or or whoever the, you know the astronaut consultant is, so there's that, and there's also I think you know in in terms of my own practice and my own uh, relationship with with Justin and Alice and with Brick Moon, I realized really early on, despite you know having designed a space habitat for manatees and chickens, <laughs> that I didn't really want to be a space architect. You know, just like I realized, like okay, all right, I've done that. I've I've built walls and you know swept floors and poured concrete. That's I've I've drawn you know structures at all scales that got built. I I've done that. I I you know I understand what I need to understand about that. I don't really want to design space habitats. You know for yeah. for all the stuff I've read about. What I'm more interested in, in doing is is being what I'm able to you know be in these conversations, which is to be you know someone who thinks a lot about the history and theory of something like space architecture or space mm -hmm. urbanism. Um, which I found that you know a lot of people are designing these space habitats and they're doing a terrific job. Um, and they, they have a lot of knowledge, um, but they're not talking a whole lot about the bigger picture, the history and theory, you know, which we talk about quite a lot in the spatial practice disciplines that I'm familiar with. Yep. So I hope to bring that conversation, you know, again, to the forefront to talk about the whys along with the hows 
uh, and of course the what's in terms of the production of space on a cultural level and on a social level, which I found that, you know, and in, in talking with Alice and Justin, especially archeologists are, are also quite good at doing, and they do, they, they have these kind of, they talk about these things in many of the same ways that architects do, which, yeah. which is really fascinating. So Brick Moon is, is, uh, is named after uh, a late 19th century short story by Edward Everett Hale that was published in the Atlantic. And it's, it's sort of the first story, the first science fiction about a space station and about what it's like ah, to look at a space station. Mm -hmm. And this is right after the Civil War. And what, um, and it's a sort of just accidental circumstance that lands these people on this, on this artifact in space, this moon made of brick. But what happens is he goes right to, okay, how they make their own culture up there and how they recognize um, a sort of a new possible relationship with the cultures that they're leaving behind on earth. So Brick Moon for us captures a lot of things. It captures the nature of the construct, right? This is the material kind of reality that was built by humans again, you know? Right, right. Um, but it also captures the idea that along with that materiality comes cultural and social concerns that um, that were foregrounded, you know, right back in the 19th century. And it should be, you know, at the forefront of, again, and in, in those spaces where design decisions are being made about future spaces, the cultural and social concerns should be part of the things that are talked about in those spaces. Of course, of course. Super interesting. And not like now it goes to obviously the next scale, it almost seems like Yes, uh, individual space habitats are in interesting and novel and whatnot, but then it really is like, well, how are how are you making almost like the space city? You know, how are you urban de designing kind of the surrounding aspects? Um, and then also, well, you mentioned earlier Shannon Mattern. Uh, I'm trying to get her on the podcast and scheduling with her is because her oh, book, her. Uh, a, a city is not a computer. You know, yes. kind of <laughs> immediately. Uh, part uh, piqued my interest um but yeah so th this is fascinating I'll, I'll be able to to link you know a lot of this stuff in the, the show notes but i guess the next to last question that i have for you like what are some of the you know future projects we should you know be looking out for um i mean this can be in any of your kind of projects uh i know that uh, alice is hosting a um sci space science and context uh conference i think next week that i'll be kind of trying to go to and attending so maybe that's you know up your alley as well but um what are some other things you're you're kind of getting into uh moving forward um into the future oh yeah i'm looking forward to attending a, a conference in london coming up in march um called disincarnate which is a chance to to sort of talk about speculative futures uh in in a way that's that brings in people from the more literary world and the literary okay. studies world. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm excited to, to to learn things, you know, from from these other disciplines that I haven't really folded in too much uh, more directly. Um, I'll be uh, we as Brick Moon. We're hoping to host in the summertime uh, a kind of workshop charrette. Uh, we already have commitments from some of the people who who work, you know, daily in designing next generation space habitats. Oh, uh, committed, but we hope to we hope to get as many people from these different companies that are making these futures, you know, together, to talk about all this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, and totally. uh, and because I think one of the things that we hope will happen is that is that when you're talking about like culture and social life, um, you don't need to worry about you know violating a non-disclosure agreement or giving you know valuable information to a competitor. Um, you know, you can have somebody from Blue Origin and somebody from SpaceX, hopefully in the same room, you know, working on the same kind of ideas at a big picture level without having to worry about, you know, day-to-day -day competition. So that that's, and the lens that we're using is the idea of crew autonomy, 
so again, it's kind of a, for me, I like, I like the term crew autonomy because it sounds kind of boring, but it actually, when you crack it open, it leads to all kinds of interesting questions about like, about how all these things happen in a way that isn't captured by data anecdotes or um, human factors. Right. And, and also, you know, my own kind of interest in the figure of the astronaut is, is I hope captured by that. So we hope to uh, have this workshop in California in Southern California uh, around midsummer. Um, okay. I'm looking forward to that. We'll see if I can um, get, come back home. <laughs> oh yeah. If that would be something you're interested in. If it's in, in LA, for sure. Love to give you more info about that. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely talk. Um, I guess then the last question, and this is kind of something I, I talk with all guests about is uh, I'm assuming you're familiar with the overview effect and kind of, the, the uh, psychological mm-hmm. happenings of what, what an astronaut goes through when they see the earth from space. And I kind of always want to take this time as a last parting question to kind of just, you know, do you have any thoughts? Like uh, I sometimes ask people like what they would maybe say. Some people have said they'd, you know, maybe read a poem or something because just the grandio- gr- the grandeur of seeing the earth from space. And there's only been like, you know, 600 people in 10 million humans ever, you know, right. since the history of time that have been able to experience this. So I don't know if you've had, you have any thoughts or want to say anything, or some people say like, no, too, I would just enjoy it. <laughs> no, I would just look. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about the overview effect. Well, I think, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the overview effect for a number of different reasons. Um, I, I like that, you know, methodology aside, I think there's some questions about maybe the scientific methodology of the study of the overview effect. He's sort of Frank White, you know, yep not really a trained uh, scientist, which, you know, no shade there, neither am I, but um, he sort of had a conclusion before he collected data and he was looking for like, looking for data to support the conclusion, which is it's always a little bit questionable, but sort of everybody sort of does that. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you as an STS person does have a lot to say about that. I honestly, I've been thinking about it that um, I wanted to maybe go into maybe some STS uh, stuff for, for my thesis about like um, the filmmaking, yeah. like my girlfriend's a Steadicam operator mm-hmm. and and that was invented in the late seventies, you know, the shining mm-hmm. and star Wars, et cetera. But then other things have kind of been coming up. It's like, wait, but you are really into this and like the, you know, the politics behind say the overview effect or how it kind of started and, and what mm-hmm. people view as, is, is, super interesting and i may you know eventually research that a little bit more <laughs> yeah and there's other people like jordan bim uh writes about uh the overview effect in a, in a really critical way uh yeah. about how you know it's it, it is you know tied to certain kinds of identities and certain kinds of existence um but i like that frank white says things like hey you know he, he sort of makes these utopian um speculations and offers these these sort of critical uh, uh forays so it's like, hey, shouldn't shouldn't going to space be a human right? Shouldn't shouldn't every you know, this question who gets to go? Well, yep. you know, Frank White's answer is that everybody should get to go, right? It should be a human right, which is like, I'm way behind the kind of utopian provocative aspects of of that kind of assertion. Um, and then, you know, the other uh, the 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 other thing that I think I love following that's really problematized the overview effect in, in recent news is that moment when Jeff Bezos sent Captain Kirk. Oh, Send, and he... uh, William Shatner up in his <laughs> yeah. face, hoping for this transcendent uh, result. Yep. And, you know, a couple of things. I mean, basically, Shatner comes back and he says, Space is a tomb. I was reminded of nothing but like our own fragility <laughs> and mortality and death. There's nothing up there but death. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Just like, it was probably not the result that Jeff Bezos was. Oh, no. He was not Captain Kirk. No, no, especially not what you were thinking of, you know, and 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 the anecdotes have been kind of along that vein. But I think I've kind of at least or I think in my head started to become a little bit more critical of the overview effect and things. And it's like for me, the the overview effect was about like, I guess you could say 
you know, that frontierism, you know, like trying to get out and about, but then that is so heavily laden with, you know, colonialism and all this other kind of stuff and, and uh, indigenous peoples and all that. And so for me now, it's like not using the overview effect to continue looking out into the cosmos. Cause I think that's interesting. There's, there's some to be said about, you know, robotic ex exploration of Europa and eventually humans eventually, I don't sure, whatever. But most of my thing is now flipped it in that the only reason why it's interesting that we go to space and, and experience the overview effect is to look back at earth. You know what I mean? And like, that's kind of been my switch. Um, but yeah, the, it's a super interesting subject that I think a lot of people uh, have a lot of thought provoking, you know, ideas and such. Um, but, well, but what also I like about the, what I like about the Captain Kirk story is that is that it doesn't matter what you think you're going to feel uh, in in advance, right? I mean, if anybody was oh, trying sure. to think about the final frontier, it'd be Captain <laughs> Kirk, but it didn't quite work out that way, no, you know, when he got not. there. So the, so the anticipation, even if you're maximally primed to have a certain reaction to an experience, it doesn't mean that anything will come out the way you thought. No but I but I agree with what you're saying here. For me, it's connected to again the critical function of science fiction, utopian or dystopian science fiction, especially, is that to critique something, you have to gain a distance from it, uh, yeah. to just sort of get a critical understanding of a system at scale, like a planet. Um, you have to sort of get distant from it in time or space, which is, which is what science fiction does, but also I think what the overview effect does. Well said, well said. Well, I think that's all the kind of time we have today. Um, so I think that wraps it up uh, for us. But I just wanted to say thanks for coming on Conversations, Fred. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Nicholas, for the invitation. It was a great conversation, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that conversation with Fred Sharman. Lots of great topics on important issues within the design and architecture field. We again thank Fred for coming on Conversations. Now, before we go, please like this video if you found the conversation interesting, leave a comment with your favorite part, and subscribe for more eclectic content. Until next time, Ad Astra.